Welcome back to the Oratory and for our monthly meeting of the School of Christi, the School of Christ. And for those who may be new to the group or here for the first time, uh, we've been discussing over this past year or so the writing of Romana Guardini, who was a priest of the 20th century and who wrote a book in the 1940s called Meditations Before Mass. And it's just a beautiful reflection upon the, the various parts of the Mass. And even though it was written in, 1940, in the 1940s before uh, the, or, new, the ordinary form was established, uh, it speaks, I think, in, in great measure to some of the things that we need to be attentive to and understand as we uh, celebrate the liturgy. And uh, to these last couple nights, uh, he's been speaking about the nature of congregation itself, and that's where he's picking up tonight. In particular, congregation is a new creation. And uh, in a culture, I think, where we uh, really struggle with a kind of individualism, uh, focus on the self, uh, the, the kind of unity that we are speaking of in regards to our understanding of the nature of the Christian congregation, especially as we celebrate the Mass, is often not understood. And Guardini does a beautiful job in this little reflection, I think, of helping us go deeper and further than we might typically uh, go in our understanding of this or our, our thinking about it. And so as always, the, the red italicized print is just my little bit of introductory material. And then we'll jump into the text of Guardini himself and stop every paragraph or so to just open it up for conversations or conversation or question, comments, uh, whichever you'd like. In this reflection, Guardini issues a challenge to us to go deeper and further than we have in understanding the nature of and participation in congregation as new creation. He shows us how we must patiently allow our vision of the church to be transformed and to become what Christ has made it through the Paschal mystery. The ego, the self, must be let go with its trappings as well as our familiar ways of understanding group psychology and identity. And this will be the big thing that Guardini sort of opens up for us in this reflection, that uh, uh, our egoism is often what gets in the way in terms of our understanding of the nature of the unity that we have in Christ, that we have to be willing to let go of the self, in a sense, and understand that we've become something new in and through Christ, through his Paschal mystery and through our common reception of the Holy Eucharist. We become one body in him. And so that re requires from us a letting go of selfishness, self-will, uh, any enmity that we might have or that might exist between any of us and to put on the mind of Christ. And so there is a kind of asceticism, a kind of work that we have to engage in, spiritual work that we have to engage in, in order to prepare to enter into the celebration of the Mass and to become what Christ has made us to be, a new creation. And so it's not just a, a gathering of people and even a gathering of people to pray and to worship together. It has to be a, a group of people who are gathered together in Christ and become one in him. And so there has to be a great spiritual uh, struggle that precedes this for us in, in terms of setting aside our passions and growing in our love for each other. We must open ourselves to that without marked and clear boundaries as we know them and be drawn into the richness and expansiveness that is God. Guardini writes, what sustains the mass is not only an endless legion of hearts and spirits, the faith and love of all creation, but also a supernatural society 
endowed with authority and bearing responsibilities. Our task is to find our place in this enormous whole. This is not easy. Man has a leaning to spiritual intimacy and exclusiveness, which causes him to shrink from such magnitude and grandeur. In the end, we must abandon ourselves to the grace of God, which alone gives us the courage and the faith to embrace such a reality. And so even in our relationships with each other, we tend to focus upon uh, a small grouping. And even if we are conscious of a kind of unity, it's usually between ourselves and one another, or we'll stretch that out to our family and, uh, or maybe a group of friends. Uh, but certainly we have something far different in, in mind when we understand ourselves as the body of Christ and in particular as congregation that it's something that includes the, the living and the dead and uh, those who dwell with God in the kingdom. And so there's something that spans time and history here that we have to, that forces us to let go of boundaries in order to really and truly live in that. And we have to open ourselves up to the grace of God in the fullest way and so that we can let go of our ego and begin to live for Christ and live for, for one another. And this has to be a conscious thing for us, especially as we are celebrating the Mass. And we see already how difficult it is. Last time we were talking about uh, if you come to the altar and there remember that you have something against your brother, leave your gift and go be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. That was difficult enough for us to make our way through and now Guardini is telling us we have to let go of bound, marked boundaries as we understand them in order that we might be drawn into something that is really beyond our imagination to grasp in all of its fullness. We have to allow the grace of God to take us where perhaps at first we do not want, want to go. Okay. And so let's jump right into Guardini's text. When churchgoers enter the sacred precincts, they come as individuals, each with his particular talents and circumstances, worries and wishes. Each takes his own stand, confronting the others. Each is isolated from the others by all the sentiments summed up in words, I, not thou, not you. Indifference, strangeness, mistrust, superiority, dislike and enmity by the hard crust developed in the struggle for existence and by the disappointments that pass goodwill as experienced. So a gr greater part of our life as human beings is uh, often to establish a kind of individuality, a sense of self. And in fact, it's an important part of our development as human beings that we separate ourselves from our, our parents and we begin to form and fashion an identity for ourselves. And we see that as something very important in terms of our development and our growth and our ability to accomplish things in, in this world. And then suddenly though, we are uh, forced to uh, reinterpret what it is to be a human being and a human being in relationship with God, but not only in relationship with God, but a part of the very life of God uh, to the point that we have to be willing to set aside perhaps what we've struggled uh, to fashion over time, or 
how history itself has fashioned that force. Perhaps we've gone through very difficult things that have shaped our personality or uh, have shaped the defenses that we put up in our relationships with others. And so he says here, we sort of become deeply encrusted in, in our defenses, enmities that existed, past wounds. All of these things have to be dealt with and in a sense set aside in order that we might be drawn into something greater than, than what we are. And again, this can't happen uh, in a vacuum and it doesn't happen spontaneously for us. I think we often will approach, and he'll address this later on, we often approach liturgy as though it's something that's meant to lift us up and exalt us and give us certain feelings, certain sentiments. And certainly at times we are given that, that we feel that we're sort of drawn into this transcendent spirit by the beauty of the liturgy or by a beautiful homily. These things do happen, but sometimes and oftentimes they do not happen. And so how is it then that we enter into the celebration of the liturgy when we don't experience these things? When there's not those natural things that would tend to lift us up, how is it that we understand ourselves participating in something greater than, than we are and to be able to enter into that fully and not be distracted by others or subpar music or a subpar homily? And so uh, a lot of good things, I think, for us to consider here tonight, because this is often what priests hear. You know, the, the homilies are terrible, the music is terrible, you know, there's noise at mass, you know, or just the uh, Novus Ordo itself, you know, it doesn't seem to have the reverence or sense of transcendence. And uh, in, in many ways, certainly that can be true. Those things are true, but the, the greater measure of the issue or problem, if you will, lies within our own hearts, our capacity to see what we have become in the person of Christ. And one could have the most beautiful of liturgies and the most beautiful music and still struggle with some of the things that Guardini is talking about here. This then is the mental state of the average worshiper as he steps into church, stands or sits or kneels, Certainly there is yet uh, little of the member of a congregation about him. Leaving aside the questionable and the out and out wrong that this state brings with it, lovelessness, pride, ill will, and so forth, let us try to get an idea of the kind of life that is pouring into the church. We have a room full of people, each with his private thoughts, feelings, aims, a conglomeration of little separate worlds, the bearing of everyone present seems to say I, or at best the we, of his closest associations, his family, friends, dependents. But even this inclusion often really means little more than a widened self-esteem. The singular ego is stretched to a natural group ego that is still far removed from genuine congregation. The true congregation is a gathering of those who belong to Christ, the holy people of God united by faith and love. Essentially, it is of his making, a piece of new creation, which he finds expression in the bearing of its participants. And so we often will approach the liturgy and we'll come to church and have a myopic or very narrow vision of things. 
sometimes we'll even try to find that place within the church where we can be most separated from everybody else. Have you ever been at the cathedral and there's that, that one part of the pew that's on the separate side of the, the great pillar so you can sit by yourself and not be next to anybody else? And uh, this would be completely contrary, I think, to what Guardini is talking about here, that the way that we enter into the liturgy uh, should and does impose upon us um, a much more expansive view of who we are and what we have become. Uh, that this sense of ourselves as being in these little groupings and even extending that somewhat is, is not in line with what Christ has created, something altogether new. We exist now in Christ, and it is that reality that it has to shape our understanding and the way that we participate in the liturgy as a whole. It can't be simply I come there and, and close myself off to the world around me, close my eyes and sort of just listen to what's going on and being, uh, and, uh, being completely uh, devoid of, of any connection that we have with others uh, there at the mass, let alone the deceased or those who have gone before us, the fact that we're surrounded by the saints and the angels in the participation uh, in the liturgy. This is not simply something that's taking place in this one church. The altar exists throughout the world itself. And so we find ourselves together with all those throughout the world celebrating the mass as if at the foot of Calvary, celebrating as one. And not to have that understanding is to hobble ourselves severely in uh, not only our participation in the liturgy, but one would say in the, how open we are to the grace that flows to, it, to us from it. If we don't understand our identity and we aren't striving to form and fashion our hearts so that we can enter into that reality fully, then our participation is not what it should be. And I, I think we've moved to a kind of, we've moved to the horizontal plane in our way of thinking about things, in, in the sense of focusing, sort of on a, a sense of community. And you, we all, the word is used over and over again. We try to be well, uh, create a welcoming spirit, or the focus is on the music, or again the personality of the priest and. All of these things might have their, their place, but they are, fall far short of the reality in which we are participating at, at the altar itself. If we had a, just a simple glimpse of the greater reality that Guardini is going to lay out here before us, we would be raised up in our, our participation uh, in, uh, in what's going on at the altar. But any questions or comments so far on what he's putting here before us? Yes. I just wanted to mention that recently I, it struck me like the Our Father is mm -hmm. the Our Father and not the My Father. That's right. You know, and when we pray the Hail Mary, it's pray for us sinners now at the hour of our day. Right. Yeah, he makes a point of addressing that. The language of the liturgy even captures this, that most often will you, we use the words we or us or are, as you said, with the Our Father, that there are limited times that the word I is used. And it's at the penitential, right? I confess, acknowledging our own sins and then taking responsibility for our, 
uh, the, our faith, what we believe. I, I believe the creed uh, is when it's used again. But throughout the rest of the liturgy, uh, the emphasis is on a common voice there, a common body uh, crying out to the Father. So we'll get, we'll get to that in greater detail. Any other thoughts? I thought I saw another hand go up. Yes. Just a question. Mm -hmm. I've noticed, and this is getting less and less, because mainly it's been older people who will pray the rosary during Mass. Mm -hmm. And is that a holdover from like when it was Latin? People didn't understand? Yeah, I, th I think so. That a great deal, of, uh, still, if you go to extraordinary form Mass, a great deal of it, it will be in silence, it will be taking place at the altar. And one can follow along in the, the missile, but uh, oftentimes there's great periods of silence where one uh, will be called to be focused on what's going on in the liturgy. But of, often, as a means to doing that, the, the rosary would be, would be said at that time. And insofar as that would be an aid to a problem, certainly participating in the liturgy with Mary and meditating upon the Paschal mystery with Mary seems to me as though that would be an aid to it. But if a person lose sight, loses sight, I think, in the praying of an individual prayer outside of what's taking place at the altar, it could be easy. In other words, I would think for, you know, if a person were praying to sort of lose themselves in that and lose sight of what's the greater mystery that they are participating in and what that devotion points to. And I think that's in, in the Novus Ordo, I think that's part of what was, uh, they were seeking to be able to address, you know, that there would be a more conscious participation and acknowledgement of what is going on at the altar, you know, not simply an, an observation from afar and even in silence, but uh, a clear understanding of the nature of the prayers, what it is that we're saying, what the priest is saying. And as we've unfolded this over the past year, we began to see how rich that is. You know, everything from the entrance into the church through the collects, the gloria, the re how we approach the readings, sense of composure, silence that we are to have, you know, that, that catechesis didn't take place. And so I think that's why we find a lot of the wildness that we do now, and perhaps a, even a less, uh, of, even less of an understanding of the transcendent aspect of the liturgy, at least with the extraordinary form, you have had the deep reverence and the, the uh, motions of the priest, the servers, and the prayerfulness of the congregation, often centered on what was going on at the altar. But now it seems as though many times there can be great distraction and disorder in terms of how even people will come in to the church itself. And so part of our going through this, that even though it was written in the 40s, it's like he's speaking to us of all the things that we would need to be attentive so that we can enter into the liturgy as fully as possible. Like, I, I think if we were simply to, today to go back to the extraordinary form, we would still be going back with all the problems that we have in terms of our understanding, but more importantly, what we, the struggles that we have within our own heart. This is what Guardini is, uh, talking about it here, that there has to be a dying to self and a dying to sin in order that we might put on the mind of Christ, that we might live for Christ alone in order to enter into this mystery. We become one with him and his offering of himself to the Father. 
and uh, not to prepare ourselves for that spiritually and not, not to have there be a kind of liturgical asceticism that exists, that we are engaged in the ascetical life precisely that we might enter into this greatest of mysteries of our faith is, is, is problematic, whether it's the extraordinary form or, or the ordinary form that we would be celebrating. Yes. So in a way, is he comparing the finite with the infinite so that when we're driven by self-will, our, our love is finite. We can only, it's tainted by the needs of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> yes, we can expand it to family and friends, right. but there's always that, it's, it's a bit warped because it's not of, of the, <clears throat> excuse me, of the pure essence of God and of the Father. Right. Yeah. And even even if we do have this capacity to stretch it, or even say if we are focused upon the beauty of the music and its capacity to help us you know, transcend, that can only take us to a certain extent. It's only by the grace of God that we can be lifted up to participate in this mystery in the way that we should. You know, it's not simply an act of will on our part. That is part of it. You know, this dying to self and dying to sin but it has to be more a reliance upon the grace of God that he might prepare us and help us to enter into the liturgy as fully as we can. And so we're often trying to make and shape the liturgy in a way that we think it should be. And here Guardini is saying, you have to let go of your own clear marked boundaries and understanding of things to be drawn into this mystical reality. And the only way that we do this is through dying to self. I've heard it said, um, we have to replace self-will with God's will. That's right. Or as Paul says, you know, to put on the mind of Christ. Or Paul, you know, is no longer, we've talked about this before, it's no longer I who live I, but Christ who lives within me. He's talking about this radical sense of setting aside the ego. You know, it's, the, pro the problem is, is that our ego has been tainted by our sin. So instead of allowing that, allowing us to love and give ourselves in love fully, we tend to turn back in on ourselves and evaluate everything in terms of how it affects us or how it pleases us or how it fulfills us. And we can do that in our religion, our faith as well. And oftentimes it's, we do it in the most aggressive and vehement way with liturgy. I think whenever you hear people talk about liturgy, it's the most, you know, I think the language used is the, you know, very strong at times. And there can be sort of even animosity between Christians as we, as we talk about this. And I think what Guardini is saying is that, you know, those things aren't unimportant, but we don't want to lose sight of the, the bigger picture and so fail altogether to understand what we're being drawn into. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's see where he takes us at this point. When we read the prayers of the Mass with this in mind, we notice that the word I, as Darren was saying, appears very seldom and never without a special reason. It is found quite clearly in the prayers at the foot of the altar when each one present acknowledges his sins, in the credo, when the individual conscious of his personal responsibility professes his belief in the divine revelation and the prayers immediately preceding Holy Communion. As a rule, we is used. 
We praise Thee, we glorify Thee, we adore Thee. Forgive us, help us, enlighten us. This we is not spontaneous, but the carefully nurtured fruit of genuine congregation. And this is one of the lines that stuck out for me. Uh, It's not something spontaneously, but the carefully nurtured fruit of genuine congregation. So I think there often is this expectation, whether it's in our uh, personal prayer or communal prayer, that somehow things should emerge spontaneously for us, that a certain feeling, a certain experience should emerge there simply through our participation in the liturgy itself. And what Guardini is saying, no, that there has to be something that's carefully nurtured here and comes to bear fruit for us. And so a larger problem, both for the priest who's uh, saying the Mass and for all those who are participating in it, is the breakdown of asceticism within the life of the church. That there is kind of purity of heart that we must possess in order to enter into the liturgy fully, in order that we might see with that clarity of heart what is taking place before us. And so often we see it simply with human eyes or with a human understanding rather than with the eye of the heart that has been purified through prayer and through asceticism, carefully nurtured over time, adorned with every virtue that we might gaze upon what's taking taking place upon the altar and see the magnificence of it. And, you know, part of this is negligence, uh, but I think part of this also has to do with fear of being drawn into something that is boundless, to be drawn into the boundless glory of God. There's part of us that does not want to let go of the familiar, what does have clear boundaries. That's a far more comfortable existence for us, to be drawn into something that is, is going to and meant to expand our hearts and to take on the dimensions of God himself, to be immersed in a love that has the dimensions of God himself. And all of a sudden, we're not in control anymore. And it is God's will that has to take over our our lives and guide and direct us where he desires us to be. And so even in an unconscious way, we we can be very much resistant to entering into that, that reality fully. We like to have an image of God that we are much more comfortable with it, comfortable with. But when we do that, our understanding and vision of God is distorted. And you know, perhaps we've created an idol for ourselves to worship every Sunday rather than our God. And it is always surprising, you know, for one who preaches the gospel, uh, you know, that I can read it and preach about it and not be disturbed, you know, not fall apart and not, you know, do it with a kind of fear and trembling that isn't rooted in my own fear of public speaking, but is rooted in uh, the awesomeness of what is being said to this. Unless you hate father, mother, wife, children, uh, brother, 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 sister, wife, children, and yes, even your own life, your own self, you cannot be to my disciples. Unless you renounce all that you have and come follow me, you cannot be my disciple. How do we hear that and not tremble in our boots or, you know, or take up your cross daily and follow me. There should be something there 
that is jarring to our sensibilities. And I think we've gotten to the point where we've domesticated the gospel, where we can hear that, it sounds familiar to us, we can shake our heads to it, but not be drawn to conversion, not be convicted by it. So it can be something that we can hear and we can hear preached about, and yet leave the church and go about our life as if nothing has changed. We've just participated in the greatest mystery that we could possibly participate in. We've been drawn into the very life of God, into the perfect and sinless love of God. And how is it that we walk out and get in our car and go on with our life as normal? Or go and eat a donut and have coffee. <laughs> Not that I have anything against donuts or coffee, but uh, it, you know, I think we move very quickly, in other words, away from the mystery in which we've just participated. I think what is striking about the Eastern liturgy, uh, even though I'd say in large part they're losing it too because so many have been westernized and they want their hour-long masses, liturgies as well. So they're forcing you know, their priests a lot of times to cut out parts of the divine liturgy to shorten it. But you know, I think when you have the iconostasis there and so you're surrounded by all the saints and angels. It makes very concrete and tangible what Guardinia is talking about here, that we're not celebrating the mass in an individualistic kind of way, but we're participating in this, you know, those are windows to the divine, the icons. And so it's, it becomes a very concrete and tangible thing for them. Plus they involve the whole self in the celebration of the liturgy. It goes on for hours. You know, there's multiple crossings, the incense, the, you know, prostrations or bowels, you know, profound bowels. You know, we've minimalized things and, you know, made it as comfortable as possible. Pews are a foreign creation. <laughs> you know, it's, it makes us too comfortable, I think, in some ways. Uh, if you've ever tried going in for adoration when you're tired and you sit down in the pew, you're out in a minute. There's something about standing that it's, it's a servant in waiting who's watching and attentive to what's going on and what's present. And I think in large part, we've become, we've made ourselves spectators like at a football game. So we sit and watch what is going on and we go up and we receive something, but often the, what, what that demands of us and our sense of how that transforms us and what we are saying amen to often eludes us. We are saying amen to that selfless love, that this is what I agree to become. In the gospel where uh, Jesus is teaching about the Holy Eucharist, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my food is real, for my, uh, my, my body is real food, my blood is real drink. And it's, we're told that half of his disciples quit following him from that point on. And our first thought is they didn't get what he was saying. They didn't understand. It was just too obscure. They thought he had lost his mind. In reality, I think they understood very well what he was saying. They were saying, if this is a master that we are going to follow and he is going to make himself Eucharist for others, then what does that mean for us? It means we are going to have to become Eucharist for others. If he's going to allow his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out in love for the world, 
What does that mean for us that are part of his, his body? This is the love that we are called to manifest to the world. And so when we come up and we hear the words body of Christ and we say, amen, it's not saying, yes, thank you. You know, we're saying, so be it. You know, th that I'm open opening myself up to this love to be transformed by it. And in some way, I'm making the commitment to live this life. And so when I exit the church, this is the love that I'm to be bearing witness to and manifesting within the world. It's that, you know, I think we do the same thing when we domesticate the mass, when we domesticate the gospel, we're doing the same thing. We're walking away from Christ when we do that. He, he's there in our mind or the image that we've created in order, you know, he does become that psychological construct for us at that point. And it's something that gives us kind of comfort, a sense of religiosity. But is it the Christ of the gospel? Is it the Christ who has revealed himself to us preeminently on, on the cross? Or is it something else that we've created in our own mind? And this is what Guardini is whittling away at in this reflection. Any comments on this last paragraph or any part of my rambling? No? James, you're rather controlled and quiet tonight. And you're just holding it up till then, till we get closer? Okay, good. We need some humor to lighten the mood. So don't hesitate. Where was I? The last paragraph? Now we begin to see what we are after. Not uh, communal experience, not the individual's great or joyous or overwhelming foretaste of the union of many before God, which may sometimes sweep through him, filling and sustaining him. Like all true experience, that is a gift of the hour which is given or withheld. It cannot be merited. Here, though, it is a question not of an experience, but of an accomplishment, not of a gift, but of a required deed. So, and what, God, what Granadini is saying, that we have a certain responsibility to bring something uh, to our celebration of the liturgy. And the biggest part of that is a willingness to set aside our egotism, to leave that at the door, and not just at the door, but permanently that there's to be this dying to self and sin that we might enter in to this reality fully. And even then, we're not meriting this worldly experience for ourselves of being lifted up or having this sweet religious kind of experience, but rather to be drawn in to something that we know is greater than what we are and that offers us salvation. These are the things that are to be in our mind and become especially important when we do experience human weakness. You know, nature, human nature, and we're going to talk about this down the line. Gordini's going to take us through a series of three hindrances to our participation fully in the liturgy. And one of them is simply nature or human natures that when we often experience that, uh, not only in ourselves, but in others, it can become an impediment for us because we can become focused upon that to such a degree that we lose sight even of God himself. And so this is where we can 
begin to see the kind of liturgical asceticism that is needed, that we prepare our minds and our hearts so fully that even in the face of those things, whatever might be a distraction to us, what might even, what might seem to diminish the experience for us doesn't preclude our entering into that mystery as fully as we can. Okay. Any thoughts? Anybody uncomfortable with what Gordini has been saying? Okay. If we are to get anywhere with these considerations, we must realize how deeply immersed in self we are and for all our talk of community, what thorough egoist. When we speak of community, we seldom mean more than the experience of self-extension, lifted up and out of our personal narrowness by the total vitality around us. We feel suddenly stronger and more enthusiastic than otherwise. In reality, no matter how long and how often people are together, they always remain alone. The real antonym of community is not the individual and his individualism, but the egoist and his selfishness. It is this that must first be overcome, and not by frequent or prolonged association, but by mastering the mind and will, which alone allows us to see others as they really are, to acknowledge and accept them, to make their desires and anxieties our own, to restrain ourselves for their sakes. But to do this, we must have solitude, for only in solitude do we have a chance to see ourselves objectively and to free ourselves from our own chains. I just want to stop there before going too far. And so it's not even the individualism, he tells us, this problem. It's, it is this egoism that prevents us from seeing the other certainly prevents us from seeing God fully, but also prevents us from seeing those around us and also seeing those who aren't even present at the liturgy. That the more the mind and the heart are formed and take on, and the more we take on the mind of Christ, the more attuned we should be to the, the trials, the struggles, the anxieties of others. There should be a radical solidarity that we have that does not allow us to live in isolation from others. And this is a struggle because it means not allowing ourselves to live in isolation from those that we don't like or that we typically wouldn't even be attentive to at all, that we would be aware of the struggle that is going on within them and that we wouldn't uh, see it in an abstractive way abstracted way, but there would be a kind of empathy in it that would, that allows us to take that upon ourselves in a real way, that understands that we own it, that it's part of who we are now. And so as we enter into this prayer before the Heavenly Father, it is carrying with us everyone else and all of their trials and difficulties. This also is part of what we uh, are assenting to in our participation in the liturgy. And it's interesting, he, he moves very quickly to say, but this doesn't take place by our constantly spending time with each other. That somehow by, if we were to go out to dinner with each other all the time, we would get to know each other really well. And so our, uh, our celebration of mass to be together would be enriched, you know. What he's saying is that the opposite is true. 
you know, it's counterintuitive that what is needed is solitude that allows prayer, that allows us to do battle with the self and really allows us to die to that false self and the, the e egotism that goes along with it in order that the, we then can step into this congregation in the way that God demands, in the way that God wills, not in the way that we simply think is right or good. And again, that's a difficult thing because that means, and you know, having this awareness of everyone around us and letting go of that enmity, letting go of the wounds that we have and seeing ourselves as uniquely, distinctly, and perpetually united to them. There is no Christian in isolation, Guardini is telling us. And we have to let, we have to let that go once and for all. And how do we understand ourselves as part of the body of Christ? You know, there, in a radical way, we have to set aside our, our limited judgments of the other and be able to see the presence of God within the other, the presence of Christ, in particular the suffering Christ within the other, in order that we might be attentive to them in love. I'll just finish this paragraph and then we'll stop for questions or comments. Someday, perhaps on some special occasion, we will realize what walls of indifference, disregard, enmity loom between us and the other man. And before mass or during the introit, we will make a real effort to break through them. We will remind ourselves, together we face God, together we are congregation. Not only I and others in general, but this man, that woman over there, and the believer next to me. In God's sight, they are all as important as I, perhaps much more so. Pure, braver, less selfish, nobler, more loving and fervent. Among these people whom I know only by their features, by their gestures, are perhaps great and holy souls with whom I am fortunate to find myself associated because the surge of their prayers sweeps me along with it to God. This is perhaps the thing that we are most blind to. Uh, I think as priests, we are, are often in this privileged position, and maybe this is why priests don't see it, is because they don't participate in it enough. We, it's in and through confession, you begin to see that reality, that nothing is as it appears on the surface. A person can seem well put together. They have everything in their life in order. They're successful. And even spiritually, they seem to have everything put together. I tell you, it's a lie. You know, it, there's no truth in it. That everyone has their struggles that are deep and hidden in one, in one way or another. And everyone struggles with these, you know, terrible periods of darkness or trial or sickness, doubt, you know, that we are unaware of. And there are people who even uh, struggle so much and have been wounded so much by life that there's part of them that hates God, but that clings to him at the same time with all their might. They, they feel that they're hanging by a string. And these people have greater faith than perhaps all of us put, put together. It seems feeble 
and they, they, their lives might seem like a wreck on the outside, and maybe psychologically they seem disturbed to us, but on the level of faith, of pure faith, they, can be the, they could be the holiest of individuals that we could imagine. And I think what Gardini is saying to us that we can be standing by those that we only know by features. We know nothing else about them, but it could be their, their very holiness that, that pulls us along and lifts us up in order to, that we might have a deeper embrace with Christ. And in reading this again, you know, I'm, I'm reminding of when these modern elders said that, you know, one family member who's a prayer can elevate the whole family. One person who's truly given over to God and immerses himself or herself in prayer can elevate the whole family in, in terms of its growth and grace and experience of the intimacy of God deep in their faith. And so Guardini is saying this about, you know, a whole congregation of people that we have, we, we know not at all. And that would go for the church as a whole around the world, he's telling us. I hope and pray that that's true because the church is in a real state. And so that there are these hidden ones that, are, that we are perhaps blind to, that have this rich and deep faith. They're like the pillars of the church that make it unshakable and should you know, free us from all fear or anxiety, even when we see all these things on the surface going on that create confusion and chaos and even the scandals that we've experienced within the life of the church now, you know, it can shake us and shake our faith in a deep way. But if we come at the faith and understand it in a way that Guardini is telling us here is that, you know, the whole church can be lifted up to this life of holiness in this way that we, we don't see or even imagine unless, unless we have the faith and unless we struggle and foster and nurture the kind of faith that allows us to see it. Any comments about this paragraph? Yes. There's just something interesting I was thinking about this um, kind of paradox of like stepping outside of oneself and yet mm -hmm. also that requiring solitude is that mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the old calendar today is the feast of the, the dedication of the Church of the Holy Savior. Mm -hmm. uh, and the common, uh, the, the gospel for, for the dedication of a church is actually the story of Zacchaeus. Mm -hmm. Um, so, which, which mm -hmm. is interesting, and so, and it has that same kind of paradox where right. he had, he has to kind of humi humble himself right. in, in the crowd, but he does so by going up this up tree street. and kind of you know in, right. in that it's almost a kind of solitude, right? Right. right. Um, so yeah, that think, tree has so many symbolically for course, us, you know, yeah. solitude, but even the cross, the cross yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, so I think mm -hmm. that, that that kind of same paradox is there, uh, right? Yeah, that we perhaps miss. You know, I think in our reading of the gospel, but I think put in this context becomes very rich. And all the stories, in fact, I think of those in the gospel that we see Christ encounter those who in the culture certainly would have been despised. You know, the tax collectors like Zacchaeus or the others, you know, who have their lives changed radically because they're swept up in this reality. They, you know, are brought so low by the poverty of their own sin that by this encounter with love and mercy incarnate, they are deeply moved. 
to the point of almost immediate conversion. And it's those who believe themselves to not be in need of it who can't see who they have standing before them. Any other thoughts? Yes. If I could, I, um, I didn't grow up Catholic. Mm-hmm. I just came into church recently. Um, and I'm still finding out the ways that the way I was raised, the church that mm-hmm. I grew up in, um, has some very different perspectives on important things right. <laughs> than mm-hmm. the Catholic church does. Right. And so if I could just ask for clarification on something. Mm-hmm. So when I was growing up, I saw a lot of situations where um, the verses of dying to ourselves or treating others better than ourselves and all of that were used in really unhealthy ways right. where people didn't care for themselves. Right. You know, I saw the harm that it caused them yeah. and their families and how it, in a way, for part of my, a good bit of my 20s, it really pushed me away from the faith and what does that actually mean to die to self because mm-hmm. there are situations where that doesn't result in good things. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm hearing, not just in community, but just in general, the ego being separated from that. And mm-hmm. is that like a basic idea in, well, in a has, Catholic perspective? It has, well, yes, actually, and, and rooted in our understanding of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. I think that's the real difference. There's real faith. You know, I came from a non-Catholic background as well. There's real and a deep faith there, but often it is uh, a much more individualistic kind of approach to things, mm-hmm. you know, that you know, one prays, reads the scriptures, that there is this r- real relationship that one seeks to foster. But the lack, I think, of the understanding of what the incarnation established in terms of our uh, understanding and experience of God, as well as our understanding of who we are as human beings in relationship to God, that all of creation itself is changed by God taking on our humanity. And, uh, you know, for Catholics, this does not cease at the ascension, that what comes into birth through Pentecost, the breathing forth, and really one might even point a little earlier to his breathing forth of his last upon the cross. You know, he breathes it forth upon the, the church in order that the body of Christ might come into existence, that Christ remains God and God remains present and in the world in a concrete, tangible way, in order that we might encounter in the most concrete and tangible way his love and his mercy. And so in a sacrament, you know, Christ is the sacrament of God. He makes present to us the, the fullness of God. And we would say the church is the sacrament of Christ. It makes present what it signifies. And that the church makes present Christ in a real way, concrete way, Christ healing and reconci- and healing and reconciliation uh, and perpetuates that throughout the life of the church through this sacramental life. And so all of a sudden, when you become Catholic, even when you don't see it, you begin to experience it first liturgically, I think, in the way that people pray and the way that they're focused on what's going on at the altar, what's becoming present. That's what one is struck with. But then all of a sudden that broadens out for us and we begin to see, my goodness, all of creation, all of history, you know, bears the mark of this divine revelation. Everything that we understand about ourselves as human beings uh, and our experience of God now has been shaped by this reality and continues to be shaped by 
this reality. It's not something notional in our mind, but something real, concrete, and tangible, experienced in and through the sacraments, but nonetheless, really and truly. So we receive the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity as our food and drink. We receive in a concrete way, not left to our mind forgiveness, but I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We hear those words spoken to us by Christ. It radically changes our, our experience of ourself, our sin, our, the world, and the way that we view others. If we believe that we receive God into ourselves, that we've been given the gift of the Spirit, but we consume Him body, blood, soul, and divinity, then it's going to radically change the way that we view others who also are made one with Him and us in and through the reception of that communion. It's earth shattering. Yes. So <clears throat> when we're dying to ourself, essentially we're dying to sin. And that <clears throat> the, the selfishness that, that uh, Gardini speaks about is our, our natural um, existence. Mm -hmm. We're naturally sinful without doing certain things that are needed to gain the grace of God. And, and I guess his prescription is solitude so that we can actually recognize in ourselves these passions that make us generally selfish. Because if we, if we stay in that selfish state, it's impossible to have true congregation because we're constantly reacting the way a sinful person would. We're, we're reacting to people's lower natures, whereas when we're able to address the passions and go to confession and go, you know, have the Eucharist, um, and the other sacraments were capable of recognizing this grace in other people. Right. And that's the true union. That's right. And right. The true congregation. And you can see why he places it in the way he does. Intimacy with God allows intimacy, true intimacy with others. And that's true in any relationship. So, you know, the, the greatest thing that a spouse could desire, for, you know, for their husband or wife is that they would pray. You know, a lot of couples, they'll, they'll find themselves fearful of that, that, you know, a person will love Jesus more or they're spending too much time away from home or something like along those lines. But, the, you know, the, their capacity to love is going to only grow in and through that intimacy that they share with Christ. And so you should want your spouse to be a prayer. Yes, go off. Make three holy hours is what we should do. <laughs> Maybe four in your case, yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts? All right. Where did I leave off? Then, right? Then we will let the other believers into the inner circle of our lives, present ourselves to God with them, linking our intentions to theirs. We will consciously earnestly pray the we of the liturgy for from such things congregation is formed. And so if we step back and think about that, it's probably fairly easy for us to see that we even say the word we in a kind of disconnected way from those who are around us. You know, that we aren't often uh, aware of the presence of the other, uh, you know, even as we are worshiping with them. Until now, we have spoken of congregation as the Christian we in its encounter with God. 
the community of those united by the same faith and by mutual love. But this is not all. The conception must include also those outside any particular building, even outside the church, for the congregation reaches far beyond. It is no closed circle, no organization or union with its own center. Each congregation is part of a whole that far surpasses any Sunday gathering. It embraces everyone who believes in Christ in the same city, the same country, over the whole earth. The congregation is gathered in, in any one church, is influenced by its particular circumstances, by its services, by the quality of its members, and by the particular uh, feast that they are celebrating. It is a unit, but one that remains open, and all who are bound to Christ are included in it. The center is the altar. A good place to underline it. Every altar in every church altar and every church altar that is simultaneously the center of the world. The Christ table, all the faithful are remembered and all belong to the we that is spoken there. So the center of this reality, the heart of this reality is Christ himself and the cross. And we are simultaneously made present and mystically made present to that reality, the perfect outpouring of love for us and for our, our salvation. And so there is no one that ex is excluded from that reality. Even the greatest of sinners, you know, is enveloped by the reality of that love. Even as it is rejected, you know, the Christ and the reality of that love is still ever, ever present. And it is this that sometimes we lose sight of, you know, that we will see the externals of the individual and of their life. Uh, and yet often lose that capacity to see the presence of that Christ-like love around them, with them, in them. Christ is the redeemer of all and came to offer himself for all. And often we will want to li limit that for one reason or another. And still we have not touched bottom. In the confidior, priest and faith will confess their sins their confession is addressed primarily to God and in his presence alternately to each other, but it is also addressed to Mary, the mother of God, the archangel Michael, to John the Baptist and the apostles Peter and Paul, to all the saints. Beyond the archangel who appears here as the leader of the heavenly host stands the world of the angels. And the saints means not only the great historical figures of sanctity, which the word usually suggests, but all the saved who have gone home to God. In other parts of the Mass as well, those who already participate in eternal life are invoked. Whereas in the memento for the dead, after the consecration, all those still in need of purification and prayer are remembered. So it's interesting, the confidior from the Tridentine right, mentions all the, the figures here that he's speaking of, uh, Michael the Archangel, John the Baptist. Uh, and there's a, another one that I came across in, when I was looking this up that even mentions John Cassian, which was sort of interesting uh, since we've, we've read him uh, so much here, but a number of different figures within the life uh, of the church. And Cassian, I, I imagine because of the emphasis on repentance and purity, purity of heart that he would be mentioned during the, the confidior. Uh, but uh, here, you know, it's in the Confidior in particular that we 
recognize and acknowledge this kind of solidarity, not only with each other, but with the, the, the living and the dead and the saints on high. And so, you know, everything that we are praying should affect what we believe and how we understand things, that this is what we are saying, this is what we are doing at Mass. It should shape the way then that we look at ourselves as well as how we understand congregation. Yes? I, just to go back to the previous paragraph really quick, I just, something struck me. When he was saying, when he writes about the congregation as we, he talks about people even outside the church when the congregation reaches far beyond. I thought about like in some of the Eastern communities where they dismiss the catechumen and let the catechumens depart. And I'm, I'm wondering, is he, does he mean like uh, everybody that's baptized or, or how does that apply? Yeah, in the fullest measure, you know, those who are part of the body of Christ would be the baptized. But, you know, the love that flows to us from the cross reaches out to all humanity. And we don't want to lose sight of that. You know, Christ em embraced our humanity, embraced our sin, and the consequence of that sin for all. You know, whether there are those who embrace it or not, you know, should be of no consequence to us in insofar as we are called to love them and to serve them. In particular, it was, you know, the, the poorest in his culture, those who are known as the gravest sinner that caught his eye. And so it should be the same for us as well. You know, not to look with scorn, but you know, to look with an even greater love, to summon greater love from our hearts for, for others. I mean, I just, uh, mm -hmm. from the thinking about the Easter, I mean, it's sort of striking as saying we're focusing on congregation, but like there is historically that they would dismiss yeah. people. Yeah, certainly symbolically, and I think in the East in particular that, you know, well, I've talked about this before, that Eucharistic adoration is a, whole, is a foreign concept to them, because typically they said they're, they're the, the deepest mysteries of their faith aren't put out there to be gazed upon. So they don't understand, you know, the idea of Eucharistic adoration, that we would place the host in a monstrance. Uh, and to be gazed upon, that it would be only within the context of the liturgy then that they would be drawn into that greatest of mysteries. And so the sense is that those who are preparing to enter into that full communion will be removed to, and precisely to be formed in the faith until their entrance into that full communion that is captured most fully in the common celebration of the Eucharist. So the intent is not to exclude them for the sake of exclusion, but to emphasize the, the gift of being part of that body in and through the reception of the Holy Eucharist once they become full members of the church. Yes? I've noticed in the last couple of years that in the parish that I go to for Sunday Mass and in the church that I attend daily Mass, they rarely use the cathedral anymore. They'll just you know, use the, you know, Lord Jesus, you know, you died for us, Lord have mercy. Yeah, it's strange. You know, somebody's mentioned that to me recently, too, after Mass. They've made a point of staying after Mass to say, I see that you used the confier and that you sang the Kyrie. And, you know, he was like, he was ecstatic because for the same reasons that you had mentioned, that he said, you know, I rarely 
hear that in church even on, on a Sunday. I don't know why that's true, other than perhaps to, for the sake of brevity, you know, which a minimal, you know, kind of minimalism, you know. I mean, it may, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure because my memory fades a lot, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, it seems like once they they changed over to the, the you know they changed the liturgy around before mm -hmm. we actually did the you know, well the mayo cook mm -hmm. you know, that's when it seems like it started like mm -hmm. you know is there an aversion to having people have to be depressed and say through I am fault mm -hmm. I don't perhaps you know our unwillingness to acknowledge the poverty of our sin I think most people I know have found you know are going back to that and embracing that to be something very powerful you know the beating of the breast you know that there's something that people identify with there. So why it's not used or why it would be set aside casually doesn't make much sense to me. Would that be the individual church decision or would that become? The priest who's celebrating the mass is the one who would decide that. So I have to imagine, you know, even here, if your daily mass runs over 30 minutes, you know, you get the hairy eyeball. So you have to be sort of careful. Okay. <laughs> Okay, where, where do I leave off? In other words? In other words, congregation stretches not only over the whole earth, but also far beyond the borders of death. About those gathered around the altar, the horizons of time and space roll back, revealing as the real sustaining community, the whole of saved humanity. And so it yanks us again out of this kind of individualism when we find ourselves sustained by this whole community of the saved, you know, it humbles us in this radical way, in, in the sense of our participation in this reality, that we, we find ourselves in the midst of those who have given all for Christ, who have been redeemed and who, you know, are the, the saints, and they're the ones who sustain us through their, their prayers and uh, through the strength that they bring to the body of Christ. This congregation in Toto, then, is the church, sustainer of the holy act of worship, that the Mass is something quite different from the private religious act of an individual is obvious, but it is also more than the divine service of a group of individuals by like beliefs, that of a sect, for instance. It is the church with all the breadth that the word implies, the universal church. We begin to visualize her scope when we read what Saints Paul and John write of her. There, even her ultimate earthly limits dissolve to make her one with all saved creation. Her attributes are the new man, the new heaven, and the new earth. Nor is the church merely the sum total of the saved plus the totality of things, but a living unit, an organism formed and composed round a reigning, all-permeating figure, the spiritual Christ. She has full powers to proclaim Christ's teaching and bestow his sacraments. Respect or disrespect to her involves God himself. What sustains the Mass is not only an endless legion of hearts and spirits, the faith and love of all creation, but also a supernatural society endowed with authority and bearing responsibilities. And this is what we were talking about earlier in the sense of the Church being the sacrament of Christ and that the, you know, the Church then performing the sacraments in order to reconcile men and women to God, that there's an enormous responsibility that is laid upon, uh, laid upon us and laid upon in particular those who are ordained to reconcile men and women to God, to bind and loose sin. 
Our task is to find our place in the enormous whole. This is not easy. Man has a leaning to spiritual intimacy and exclusiveness, which causes him to shrink from such magnitude and grandeur. There is also the resistance of modern religious feeling to the visible church in its realistic sense, resistance to office and order, to authority and constitutionality. We are all too subjective, inclined to count as truly religious only the direct and spontaneous experience. Order and authority leave us cold, for self-discipline is especially necessary. Here, self-discipline is especially necessary. The text of the Mass repeatedly reveals the attitude which has been called Roman, an attitude that rests precisely upon the consciousness of formal institutional unity, God-given authority, law, and order. This may strike us as strange, perhaps even an unreligious, even as unreligious we spoke of this before in our discussion of the collects. Those same collects express something very important for us. Not only are we as Christians congregation, not only save mankind a new creation, we ourselves church. So much so we must consent and patiently educate ourselves to this given role. And so the whole attitude now in our day of I'm spiritual but not religious runs completely contrary to everything that we've talked about here. It's precisely the concrete manifestation of this reality that is part of this greater incarnational worldview that we've talked about and essential for our experience of the, the mercy and the love of Christ as God has willed it to come to us and be experienced. And so to cast that off as though it's of no importance or as if it's, as if it's an, an obstruction true true religion is foolhardy and reflects a kind of ignorance of, of the very nature of the church itself. And it's our responsibility to be able to communicate that well and perhaps because those realities have broken down so severely in some cases that we've undermined ourselves and under, undermined a true understanding of the nature of the church and what it offers. to the point that people are saying now that they don't want what, promise, what promises them and holds out to them everything. It's hard to think of a sadder reality. And it's very, very difficult to overcome once that has been lost. You know, once that's, it's, you know, the, the church itself is held in suspicion, the realities of it have been undermined it's hard to restore that in the minds and hearts of those who do have faith, but it's been severely truncated. Any thoughts or comments? It's almost as though he's addressed speaking to our day. You know, this last paragraph in particular, I thought was, because we hear this so often now, and with heightened intensity in light of everything that has gone on. Nothing. Crickets. Okay, yes. Oh, okay. Brother Joel had his hand up. Great. You take it. 
No, I've just been kind of mulling over from the start this uh, line I remember from um, St. John Henry Newman um, that uh, in one of his um, sermons he says um, like the, the, the only two realities for the Christian are the self and God and like the world can't kind of get at the soul. I was like, well, that's kind of the opposite of what's going on here. Um, but I guess I thought like Yes, but like that self in relation to Christ is that Christ is the Eucharistic God, right. and, and in that we find the right. community through the liturgy and right. and, uh, and a God who has revealed Himself. Right. You know, Newman believed in a revealed religion, and that has you know uh, you know that impacts us in a multitude of ways: the way that we understand ourselves, but and the way that God engages us. And has chosen to engage us, and it includes our understanding of the church itself. Um, oh, and I was just going to say, I, I, I was glad this last section was added because it, it, it kind of feels like you could it, it could become too diffuse, you know. Just and which is quite precisely the problem with that kind of spiritual, not religious thing, right. is that it it's a you know. In some ways, it's a nice sentiment, but then it becomes kind of it, it can it gets hollowed out very quickly right. because it's the it's precisely the the structure that that gives uh, that allows a kind of it allows one to live that spirituality. Otherwise, right. it's just something in your head. Right. Um, so yeah, we're going to find ourselves very isolated and alone if you embrace that view in its fullness. Because yeah. as, as soon as you get irritated with somebody or don't like something, you're going to separate yourself from them. You know, if you take this um, spiritual but not religious kind of approach to things. Okay, I think that would be a good place for us to end on a <laughs> joyful note. And one, we stand together and we'll say the, the prayer to St. Philip. And then our closing hymn, we'll ask Ren to intone that too again, because I don't in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly, thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee, for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.